The scripture reading for today is from Revelations 2, 8 through 11, and then 3, 7 through 22. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And on to 3, 7 through 22. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and sob to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. 
I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and he with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This past Wednesday, our dear brother David Hulley graduated to glory. Dave was a longtime member of College Church and our daughter church, Stony Brook, and he served the Lord with a full heart in many ways for many years. Uh, Anne, we love you. Um, if you happen to be seated near Anne and her family uh, and you want to reach your hand out toward them as we pray, please feel free. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for David's life. Thank you for his persevering faith, which is now sight. Thank you that he is in the presence of Jesus even now. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Help us to mourn. Death is an intrusion on your good creation. Would you draw Anne and her family more and more deeply into your arms as they grieve? Pour out your grace and mercy upon them and show us how we might be your hands and feet in the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our goal this year is to deepen our engagement with Scripture and to discover or perhaps rediscover the wonder of its life-changing truth. If you need a Bible, by the way, please stop by the Welcome Center before you leave today. We would love to give you a Bible. Um, this fall, we're journeying through the book of Revelation, and Revelation is one of those books that really forces us to do our homework, to pay attention to things like genre and symbolism and historical context so that we can really understand what John is getting at in this book. John's goal in writing Revelation is to show Jesus' followers what's really going on, just beyond what we can see and hear and touch. There is a cosmic battle raging between good and evil, between the lamb who was slain and the dragon who seeks to lie, kill, and destroy. And we are in the crosshairs of that battle. The lamb, Jesus, is going to win. In fact, he already secured his victory when he triumphed over sin, death, and the dragon on the cross. And we can share in his victory by remaining faithful to him, by trusting and obeying him and walking in his ways no matter the cost, no matter how hard it gets. Next Sunday when we gather, uh, the sanctuary is going to look even more different than it looks today. Um, Revelation 4 and 5 uh, give us a sneak peek into the white-hot center of reality, God's throne room. And our goal as we gather next week is to be able to enter into the drama that's unfolding in those chapters and to join in the heavenly worship that is unfolding in them. Uh, the nursery's going to be open next Sunday, but all the other kids are going to be up here. We don't want them to miss this. And uh, we encourage you, we urge you 
to make every effort to be here on time so that you don't miss any of the drama as it unfolds next Sunday. Uh, four days later, on uh, Thursday, November 2nd, we are going to gather here for a 7, uh, 7 p.m. Uh, gathering for a public reading of Revelation. Jasmine Myers Antonucci is going to read the whole book from cover to cover. Uh, it takes about an hour. There will be music and visuals to help the book come alive, but the book was written to be read aloud um, in community so that we can hear the drama unfold collectively and perhaps even respond spontaneously to it together. So mark your calendars uh, for that day. All right, last week we began looking at Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus' personal address to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Last week, we zoomed out to kind of take in the pattern of what Jesus was doing, encouraging, correcting, and motivating the churches to come out of Babylon and come under him. We talked about how Babylon, which is John's symbol for the world system that abuses power in order to exploit and oppress and distract people from God, Babylon is not just out there. Babylon is in here. It penetrates and colonizes inside the church. And so we must become wise and discerning disciples who can recognize and resist Babylon and come under the gracious and redemptive reign of Jesus. This week we're going to continue to look at these letters, but we're going to, we're going to zoom in. We're going to look at the particulars. How does Jesus address in a very personal, specific way three of these churches. As we do this, I want us to see the tenderness of Jesus. I want us to see his love and his compassion for the churches and how he longs to redeem our collective stories. As we do, I hope that we will fall more and more in love with Jesus and become more and more like Jesus as we relate to our brothers and sisters across the valley and around the world. So today we're going to zoom in on three of the seven churches, Smyrna, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll see just exactly how Jesus comes alongside of each of them and speaks to their hearts in the midst of their unique circumstances. So here we go. Smyrna. Uh, it was known as the, as the crown of Asia. Uh, it was wealthy. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, here it is today. Uh, but the Christians, uh, unfortunately, back in the day, did not get to share in their comfort and wealth. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. The word translated afflictions is philipsis, which means crushing pressure. The church in Smyrna was under crushing pressure to conform to the ways of the empire. The city slogan was Rome first in all things. And so they were fiercely loyal to Rome and to the emperor. And because of this, they were intolerant of anyone who refused to bow down to Caesar. And there were additional pressures. Jesus mentions the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. What does this mean? Well, going way back, uh, Jews had a special status in the empire. They were free to worship their own God, and they were exempt from having to make sacrifices in Roman temples and from military service. It's a pretty sweet deal. In John's day, Christianity was broadly understood to be a Jewish sect because it came out of Judaism and because many Christians at the time were Jews. Well, in Smyrna, the Jews began to fear that if Gentile Christians 
started to claim their religious exemption, it might jeopardize their special status in the empire. So to prove their loyalty to Rome, they began informing the authorities of any Christians who weren't fulfilling their civic obligations. Hey, Andronicus, who lives over there, he refuses to go to the temple. And as a result, you know, Christians in Smyrna were being imprisoned or they were forced, pressured to renounce their faith in Jesus by sword point. I know your pressure, Jesus says. Now, we might expect Jesus to say, I know your pressure and I'm going to lift it. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Jesus offers the church in Smyrna no corrections, no rebukes. They are doing everything right, and yet, of all seven churches, they are suffering the most which is often what happens. Christians who blend in with the dominant culture usually manage to avoid persecution. It's the Christians who maintain their distinct identity that tend to suffer. Following Jesus brings joy, grace, freedom, abundance into our lives, but it can also bring philipsis into our lives, pressure, affliction. Jesus says, do not fear, I am the first and the last, which is to say your lives are bracketed by Jesus. Jesus is your source and he is your destiny. You are rooted in him and you are bound for him and no amount of thalipsis can change that. Jesus says, I know your pressure. I know your poverty. No one in Smyrna should have been poor. It was the wealthiest city in the region by far. So why were the Christians poor? Well, they were poor because they did not conform to the pattern of the city. They marched to the beat of Jesus' drum, and as a result, they were ostracized, boycotted, shops were confiscated, homes were ransacked, they were denied employment and patronage. I know your pressure, Jesus says. I felt that pressure, that pressure to give in to the crowd, That pressure to let go of God and seize glory for yourself. I resisted that pressure. And as a result, I was rejected and crucified. And yet, friends, I am alive again. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Philipsis is a daily reality for Christians in various parts of the world. And on some level, it may be part of your story. There are people at college church who have been disowned by their families because of Jesus. People who experience pressure to censor their beliefs at work if they want to keep their jobs or advance professionally. There are people in our community who really don't want to be in relationship with me because I'm the pastor of college church, and I've tried. I don't consider that persecution, but if we're not careful, the experience of being left out can lead to temptation, to compromise, to self-censor, to minimize our distinct identity, to downplay our relationship with Jesus so that we can blend in and reduce that social friction that we sometimes feel. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, you are poor, yet you are rich. 
Your lives are brimming with courage. You have an animating hope. You have a love that is powerful, even if it's misunderstood. You appear poor, but in reality, you're rich. You appear weak, but in reality, you're strong. I know your pressure. The pressure is temporary. Your victory, your crown is eternal. Don't compromise. Don't quit. Don't be afraid. Your lives are hemmed in by grace. You know, we live in the most secular part of the country. Some of us feel pressure to downplay our relationship with Jesus or keep it behind closed doors and, you know, kind of fall in line, get with the program, or else we might risk losing credibility or friendships or opportunities. How is Jesus speaking to us in the midst of that? Let's look at, uh, at Philadelphia. Philadelphia was located on the edge of uh, active volcanoes and fault lines, uh, which meant that their soil was rich and fertile, and they lived in close proximity to hot springs. Very nice. But they also had to deal with frequent earthquakes. And when an earthquake hit, the Philadelphians would, would have to flee the city until the aftershocks had passed, and then they would return home. And Jesus says to them, if you remain faithful to me, I will give you a city that cannot fall, that will not be shaken. In AD 17, um, an earthquake leveled Philadelphia. Uh, the emperor suspended their taxes and paid to have the city rebuilt. So out of gratitude, they renamed themselves Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. They gave their city a new name. And Jesus is wise to this history, and he says to them, if you remain faithful, I will write on you the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. He says, I will make you a pillar. There were so many temples in Philadelphia that it became known as Little Athens. When a magistrate or a benefactor or a priest served the state well, they would honor that person by inscribing their name on one of the pillars in one of the temples so that all who came to worship would see their name and remember them. And Jesus says, if you overcome, if you persevere, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, in the only temple that will last. The Philadelphian Christians had been excommunicated from the Jewish community because of their faith in Jesus. The door to the synagogue was literally shut in their faces. Jesus says, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. In other words, you belong. You are part of God's family. Many scholars believe that that open door may have had a double meaning. Philadelphia was built on one of the greatest highways in the world at that time, one that connected Europe with the east. And the city was built uh, to be a base uh, from which to uh, launch a campaign to Hellenize the world. It was a missionary city from the very beginning, one of the most strategic cities in the world. Jesus says, I know that you have very little power. I know that there aren't many of you. You have no political influence. You've been beaten down. But I have given you an open door, a door of opportunity to demonstrate and share the gospel with the nations who move through your city. Never underestimate what God can do with a small group of people who are sold out to Jesus. 
Never underestimate the impact that a tiny bit of yeast can have in a huge lump of dough. The church in western Massachusetts is small compared to other parts of the country. I think less than 3% of Hampshire County residents attend church at least once a month. And yet, the nations have come to us. Through the five colleges, through refugee resettlement, the church, while small, has a door of opportunity to impact future leaders and people from all over the world. The church in Philadelphia experienced natural disasters, persecution, excommunication, and Jesus says to them, I know your situation. I know your weaknesses. I know the doors that have been slammed in your face. I know how powerless you feel. I've been there. But here is an open door. I will give you a city that cannot fall. I will give you a name. I will write it on pillars that will stand forever. Jesus is such a good pastor, isn't he? All right, what about Laodicea? Laodicea receives Jesus' harshest words. Uh, The city of Laodicea lacked a local water supply, so they depended on Roman aqueducts for water. Problem was they were too far from the hot springs to get hot water and too far from the cold springs to get cold water, so by the time any of the water reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And Jesus, addressing their spiritual condition, says, you know what? You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And therefore, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the word there is literally, I will vomit you. Jesus found their spiritual condition nauseating. What was their sin? Their sin is that they tolerated Jesus. They kept him around, but they lacked conviction. They lacked spiritual passion. They responded to the glory of the gospel with a shrug. And they were duplicitous. Jesus for my private life, but the emperor for my public life. I'll worship Jesus when no one else is looking. But otherwise, I'll play by Rome's rules. And just like Smyrna, Laodiceans were very rich. But unlike Smyrna, the Christians in Laodicea were also rich. Why? because nothing about their lives set them apart. They were no no different from their pagan neighbors at all. No one saw them as a threat. They were good little Romans. Laodicea had three sources of wealth, banks, a massive clothing and textile industry, and a thriving medical school that was famous for producing eye salve that was shipped all over the world. Like Philadelphia, Laodicea was also destroyed by an earthquake. Unlike Philadelphia, when Rome offered to suspend their taxes and pay for its reconstruction, the Laodiceans refused Rome's help. Can you imagine? No thanks. Yeah, we got plenty of money. We don't need your help. And that attitude of self-sufficiency permeated the city permeated the culture. It was a badge of honor to say, we're all set. No help needed here. We're good. And the Christians brought that attitude with them into the church. Eh, we don't really need grace. We're fine. Jesus wants to pay our debts. No thanks. We can handle it. Jesus says, you say that you are rich, but actually you are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Now wait a minute. Did Jesus suddenly stop being gentle? Not at all. 
Not at all. Because as long as we treat Jesus like an optional add-on to our designer, self-sufficient lives, we are courting death. We are in denial about our real condition. You can have all the money in the world and still be poor in the things that really matter. You can have all the finest clothes money can buy and still be naked, still be filled with guilt and shame that you don't know what to do with. You can have first-class medicine at your fingertips and still be wretched and blind. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This is a hyperlink, most scholars believe, to Isaiah 55. Jesus says, buy from me without cost. Let me give you what you do not possess. Recognize your spiritual poverty, your guilt and your shame and your spiritual blindness. Come to me and I will clothe you. I will help you to see. I am so grateful for Recovery Church. Shout out to my Recovery Church peeps back there. Yes. (laughs) Friends, you are the opposite of lukewarm. You are desperate for Jesus. The secret to your spiritual power is your conviction that you cannot manage your own lives. You cannot save yourselves. And so you have run to Jesus for help, for freedom, for forgiveness, for mercy, for a fresh start. And because of that, you come, because you come to Jesus fully aware that you are pitiful, blind, and naked, Jesus has made you alive. And you are filled with spiritual passion and electrifying joy. And I notice how you, you do something this is, that is very uncollege church, you get to worship early. And you get here early so that you can encourage one another. And because you don't want to miss out on anything. You're on fire. Why? Because you know your condition. You know you need help. You know that you come to Jesus empty-handed and he gives you everything. He's given you your life back. He's given you beauty for ashes. And it's not just Recovery Church. That's, for many of you, that's your story. That's your reality. You know that without Jesus, you are wretched, pitiful, and blind, and his grace and mercy towards you is electrifying. But some of you are lukewarm. You're just kind of maintaining. You're just kind of, you know, trying to to glide on on the fumes of last year's or maybe last decade's spiritual momentum. You haven't quit. You haven't left Jesus. You're just, you're just not passionate. You've lost conviction. You've lost the urgency. You've become self-sufficient. You spend most of your life on autopilot. You're basically doing your own thing. You sprinkle in some Jesus here and there when you have time. But if you're honest, the people in your life don't think of you as weird at all. Maybe they've known you for years. They don't even know that you follow Jesus. You just blend in so well. Your life isn't provocative. Nobody asks you about your hope. You're just a good little Western Mass citizen. There's no urgency to share your faith. At times you downplay your relationship with Jesus. Perhaps there's even a ground note of fear in your life. What will people think if they find out that I follow Jesus? will, Will they still like me? Will I still belong? 
if that's you, do you realize that you're lukewarm? And that lukewarmness literally makes Jesus sick to his stomach? What would, it, what would it look like for you to let Jesus and his perfect love cast out your fear and electrify you all over again? How does Jesus respond to this lukewarm church? How does he, does he rip them a new one? Does he say, you don't, know, you don't need me? Fine, fine, I'm out of here. No. Jesus says, recognize your poverty and I will give you riches. Recognize your nakedness and I will clothe you in white. Recognize your blindness and I will give you the ability to see like you've never seen before. When Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, we expect him to say, those whom I agape, right? Because agape is God's love. It's it's his settled commitment to pursuing our good, even if it causes him to suffer. That's what we expect him to say, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, those whom I phileo, I discipline. Phileo is brotherly love, friendship love. Affection. Jesus looks into the eyes of those who become lukewarm, who are sliding into indifference and compromise, and he says to them, you know what, I really like you. I I would really like to be your friend. I would really like to hang out sometime. It's not what we expect him to say. It's almost as though he's greasing the skids for us to move toward him. He says... I stand at the door and knock. In almost every artist's rendering of this verse, the handle is on the inside of the door. In other words, it's Jesus who's being excluded, not us. We have to open the door to him. We have to come to the place of saying, I need you, Jesus, come in. Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In other words, friendship. Do you see Jesus' tenderness and compassion? Even when we are lukewarm and indifferent, even when we slam the door in his face, even then, Jesus pursues us, woos us, speaks tenderly to our hearts. All right, what do we do with this? One of the themes in Revelation is the theme of appearance versus reality. Look look at these seven churches. The church that is suffering the most is probably the most faithful. Whereas the wealthiest and the most successful churches are the most compromised. John wants us to see past appearances. I think this is even more important for us because we live in such a visual culture. We are constantly bombarded by images. And those images define reality and they shape our imaginations. But friends, things are not always what they seem. Sometimes the most successful leaders, the most successful churches are dying on the inside. While churches that appear powerless, that appear to lack influence, are actually alive, are actually pulsing with the Spirit's energy. See, the dragon wants the churches to focus on anything but Jesus. Often the most dangerous distractions are not other belief systems or even sins, but ministry itself. What's our impact? How many people are attending? How many ministries do we have? How big is our budget? 
The dragon would love for us to focus on those things. Anything to take our eyes away from Jesus. Friends, don't be taken in by appearances in the kingdom of God. Substance is infinitely more important than style every time. In studying these letters, I have just been amazed by how Jesus responds to these different churches. Whether he's speaking to a faithful church or a compromised church or a church that's lost its zeal entirely, Jesus approaches each of them with tenderness and compassion and an invitation. Part of our job, I think, as followers of Jesus is to embody that same tenderness and compassion. So what might that look like? Well, first, I think it means we will not weaponize a church's weaknesses against them. We won't look down on other churches or criticize them or speak ill of them. I've done far too much of this over the course of my life. Christian tribalism is just as dragony as any other kind of tribalism. That church is bad, or that denomination is bad. You should come over here. The fact is every church needs correction and encouragement. The fact that Jesus takes the time to correct the churches means that they are not beyond hope. No church is perfect. Sometimes churches misrepresent Jesus. Sometimes they hurt people, and Jesus still holds out hope for them. Secondly, we won't be quick to jump ship. One of the best ways to grow spiritually is to stay in a church that's disappointed you. Our first instinct as ministers of reconciliation, because that's what God calls us, should always be to try to stay and work through the conflict. Or work through the differences. Try to make peace. When that goes well, God can bring about not only relational healing, but profound growth. Sometimes it's not possible, especially in cases of spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse is evil if that's part of your story and you're here in a church or you're tuning in online. Praise God. We want so much for this to be a place where you can heal where you can be renewed by God's love and grace. If a church that's hurt you will not engage in a path to peace, will not take responsibility for the harm it's caused, if it responds to healthy confrontation with defensiveness and self-justification, if there's no way forward, it may very well be time to leave. But make every effort to leave well. Bless those who have helped you to grow spiritually, who have loved you. And then pray. Don't pray for the church's downfall. Pray for its repentance and growth into Christ's likeness. Pray that it will bear fruit again. Friend, when you leave a church, remember that Jesus loves the church that you're leaving. He may have hard words for it, but he loves the church that hurt you. And he longs to see it repent and make things right and grow in grace. Part of following Jesus is learning to be patient and hopeful with churches that are struggling. This isn't hypothetical. This is our story. Do you know how college church began? A group of people broke off from another church to form college church. We were born of a split. Our very existence is the result of brokenness and disharmony in Christ. 
Our founding pastor was a womanizer who abused power. He was charismatic and passionate about sharing Jesus, but he had massive deficiencies in his character. It is a miracle that we survived our founding pastor. But God brought people to us, including the Dissingers, the Wassmans, the Marians, and others, who taught us how to listen to God, how to pray. He sent us Dave McDowell, who smelled like Jesus and spoke God's words and stayed for 25 years. And then 10 years ago, we experienced a split. Our pastor at the time resigned. People took sides. The church was torn in two. The next Sunday, only half the congregation showed up. If you were here then, you remember the pain and the confusion of those days. It's a miracle that we survived that split. But God sent us wise leaders who called us to humble ourselves and examine ourselves. And they invited us to confess our sins to one another and forgive one another. They even had us go back to the church that we split from 50 years ago and confess the hurt that we caused back then and ask for their forgiveness. And we learn how to listen to each other and pray together and dream together and trust one another again. And somehow, in the midst of our collective shame and brokenness, God breathed fresh wind on us. And he brought deep healing and growth and renewed hope. And a lot of people left in those days. But a lot of you stayed. And through prayer and perseverance and love, you became part of the remnant that God is using to begin to write a new history for College Church. Our story is littered with the tenderness and compassion of Jesus. Right now, we are in a season of peace. Right now, we are in a season of peace and growth, and I'm so thankful for that. I love that I get to be part of a church where the homeless feel at home, where the lonely find family, where the wounded can heal, and where failures like me can experience grace. Many churches are struggling, including many churches right here in the valley. They're struggling financially. They're struggling to raise up leaders. They're struggling to beat back against the tidal wave of secularism, struggling to come back from the pandemic and from political polarization that tore them to shreds, struggling to get people out of their pajamas on a Sunday morning. One of the most convicting things I've read in a long time was a quote from Dallas Willard. He was speaking at a pastor's conference when he said, I'm going to tell you, The single most important task of a Christian, especially those who are in church leadership, and I'm pretty sure you could have heard a a, a pin drop in that moment, everyone leaned in. Dallas Willard says, the most important task we have, especially for those who are in church leadership, is to pray for the success of our neighboring churches. When we were struggling, other churches prayed for us, prayed circles around us. Today, other churches need our prayers. I need to step up my game when it comes to praying for other churches. How about you? I don't know how long the season of peace and growth is going to last at College Church. I hope it lasts a long time. But if it ends in scandal or compromise or just the long, slow process of our love growing cold, I am confident that Jesus will meet us in our weakness with tenderness and hope and with an invitation to come and eat with him. 
Friends, there is a battle. We are in the crosshairs of that battle every day. Babylon is penetrating and colonizing the churches, and we are no exception. And therefore, we must be on high alert so that we can discern and resist Babylon. We must cultivate Jesus' tenderness and compassion for the churches and pray for the churches no matter their condition. Family of God, remain in Jesus. As time goes by, we may find ourselves increasingly misunderstood, mocked, ridiculed, made to feel like strangers and exiles. That's okay. We might even lose our tax-exempt status someday. Do not fear. Stand firm. Remain faithful. Stick with Jesus. If we do, one day we will see the shepherd of our souls face to face. We will experience perfect unity and oneness around God's table. Let's pray. Gracious God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the pressures, endured the afflictions, endured the thalipsis, the rejection of sinful men when he went to the cross in our place. May we consider him, his sacrifice, over and over again so that we do not grow weary or lose heart. Thank you for your tenderness and compassion which you have shown College Church over and over again for 51 years and counting. May your tenderness and compassion be evident in us. And may we hope and pray for the churches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's